Welcome to Media Talk USA for November. I'm Jeff Jarvis. The leaves have changed, the weather's getting brisk, and there's lots of news in the news business. The folks around the Politico are going local in Washington, D.C. Will The Post survive its new competition? We are fast upon an election, which means that TV and radio are making money from commercials. We take a look at the news around the media industry. Bloomberg buys Business Week, CNN falls to the bottom of the news ratings, and Fox and the White House feud. And Columbia University argues that media industries need government and charitable support. Is America ready for socialized journalism? Media Talk USA. Welcome to the November edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. As we speak, the Yankees and Phillies are battling it out in baseball's World Series, but there'll be no sports talk here. Joining me in the studio to talk about news are... Michael Tomaski, a native of Morgantown, West Virginia. He spent seven years at New York Magazine writing the City Politic column, and he currently serves as editor-at-large for The Guardian and also as editor of the quarterly journal Democracy. Welcome, Michael. Nice to be with you, Jeff. And Media Talk USA is delighted to welcome back our first encore guest. Jay Rosen is a professor of journalism at New York University, where he leads the new Studio 20 program. Jay is also the author of the Press Think blog, not to mention many a carefully crafted tweet. Welcome back, Jay. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. So, first up on our agenda, Politico goes local. Media Talk USA, from The Guardian and paid content. Ever since it went on the internet, The Washington Post has been debating whether it's a breath mint or a candy mint, whether its strength and business are national or local. It chose local. But now it has competition on both fronts, as The Politico announces that it is now creating a local service using the DC media assets on TV and cable of its parent company, All Britain. The venture will be headed by Jim Brady, not long ago the Post's own online executive editor, and until recently a consulting editor to The Guardian in America. Of course, Politico was started by two more departees from the Post, John Harris and Jim Vandehey. I, for one, am delighted to see investment in local, but I do fear for the fate of the Post. Michael, how does this look from your backyard? First thing I'd say is that It's a little bit strange and daring for Politico to do this because I believe uh, the audience for local news in Washington, D.C., A, I don't know how vast it is. B, I think it's very different from the audience for national news, uh, which is to say from Politico's normal audience. Uh, Politico has people like us checking it every day, a few times a day probably. Um, you know, their their plan is to, you know, win the morning in the phrase of John Harris uh, and uh, and be a constant political junkie, you know, mainlining kind of uh, event in our lives every day. Now, that's the, the, the most of those people don't follow local Washington news and politics all that much. So they're trying to reach to a very different audience. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's a question mark as to uh, how big an audience they're going to be able to build for it or it'll take time. Jim? Well, um, the Post situation has been a little strange because they make their money off the local product, the print newspaper, but they make their influence and their brand off their national reach. And they have a huge audience online because of that national reach. Um, And this is partly, I think, not so much an extension of the Politico, but an extension of Albritton's local broadcasting because they already own a 24-hour news cable station. They own an ABC affiliate, which is a force in news in Washington. And the logic is partly 
let's be as dominant online as we are on the air in local news. And to borrow some of what they've learned from the Politico. Um, meanwhile, they've taken one of the most talented people to come through the Washington Post over the last few years, certainly the one with the best grasp of how to succeed online, and they're now uh, going to compete with the Post with their own people in a sense, just as the Politico did. Um, and what interests me about it is that it testifies to something wrong at the Washington Post when talent that should be building one of the great newspapers of our time into a great force online is now competing against that newspaper. There's something's wrong there. And I don't know exactly what it is because I, I don't have a lot of sources inside the post. I don't follow the politics internally that much. But that's the thing that really strikes me is that they're, they're losing the people who should be there to reinvent the post. Well, I think the print people won and I think uh, entrepreneurship never had a chance. Uh, I blogged this a year and a half ago when the Post did one of its uh, buyouts. I said, why are you letting that talent go out the door? Why don't you invest in them? Offer them all a blog or a site. Give them technology and promotion and ad sales and all that. I said this at the Aspen Institute when we presented our new business models for news and that surprisingly resonated in the room. People understood that's a new relationship. It's not an employee and a control relationship. So I think everyone, including the Post, realized they should have started Politico. The question is, could they have? I'm delighted to see investment in local news on a for-profit basis. There's a lot of investment in local news starting to happen in, in, in new ventures in San Francisco, Austin, San Diego, Minneapolis. That's encouraging in the fact that people are willing to put money into news, but they're doing it all in a not-for-profit basis, which sounds good and good-hearted, and it is, except that it's going to compete, I think, with both the old newspapers that are dying and with the tender sprouts of new entrepreneurial ventures. So the fact that All Britain is willing to invest in a for-profit venture and throw his might behind that, uh, though I fear for The Post, and I've loved The Post, and think it's a great paper, it was a great paper, um, I think it's great that someone's investing. Yeah, I agree with that. And they're going to have a staff of 50, so it's not like a skeleton crew. Uh, and it's a serious threat. 50 almost seems like too many, really, in a way. Uh, I, I don't think you need 50 journalists to cover Washington, D.C., but, but we'll see. I mean, uh, look, uh, better to have more than fewer because everything else in the business is fewer. Uh, I have some friends at The Post. Morale's not good, you know, and, uh, and people are obviously very worried. And I think The Post, I think we'd all agree that The Post has made a lot of not very bright moves. They made one bright one recently. I think you guys would probably agree. The hiring of Ezra Klein was a smart thing for them very to do. Very smart. Ezra's a, a young, uh, I actually gave him his first job, uh, so I have a slight interest here uh, in his advancement. But uh, he's a really bright young guy. He writes a blog at the Washington Post. He's very uh, uh, immersed in the details of policy. So during this current healthcare debate, he's a real, his blog is a real go-to destination. The interesting thing about it is that Ezra on his blog, though he's, he's not really a Washington Post reporter in the sense that the people out covering Capitol Hill are, but he beats the Post's own reporters to a lot of things. And, and when Jim a, Brady was it, there, I think yeah. he saw that happening with online and that caused some of the political problems in the paper. Yes. Was that there was a rivalry my hope is this rivalry might wake up the post. Yeah. Because it has been a great paper. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. Now from Politico to politics. 
Joe Trippy dreams that the revolution will not be televised, but as long as campaigns still depend on TV commercials, I fear there will be no revolution. I've had a new perspective on this in the last few weeks as, full disclosure, I've been sitting in on strategy sessions and making YouTube videos for my New Jersey neighbor, Chris Daggett, who's running for governor there against Democrat John Corzine and Republican Chris Christie. Though Daggett is running up an impressive poll number for an independent, 20-plus percent, without big money, and he doesn't have it, it's nearly impossible for him to get his message through, and it's just as hard to be heard amid the unceasing nastiness of commercial campaigning. Christie threw his weight around as U.S. attorney and got off easy. Corzine. Tax. Waste. Debt. Failure. Cree Deeds has not even bothered to formulate much of a transportation plan. What kind of person writes a thesis calling working women detrimental to the family, then lies about his opponent to cover up his own record? Is there any hope for campaigns that start to bubble up apart from big media? Uh, pretty slim, I think. <laughs> I mean, television is always going to be the main vehicle. Uh, well, who can say always? But uh, for the foreseeable future, it's going to be the main vehicle for all campaigns. And since many of our listeners are in Britain and elsewhere, uh, I know that in Britain there are limits on what kind of what, uh, ads can appear and when they can appear in the run-up to the election. There are no such limits in, in the United States or few such limits. And uh, one of the problems we have in trying to regulate this kind of thing is that the United States Supreme Court has ruled that you know money is speech and and that these things and and therefore free and that these things can't really be regulated very sharply. Uh, I would support free television time for campaigns and candidates candidates because they spend about seventy percent of their money on uh, television commercials. Uh, but I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. Jay, isn't the structure of media itself just built this way? Uh, you know, for all the talk about change, in politics brought on by the internet, has the coverage really changed? Well, one of the things that has certainly not changed in addition to the money, power, television nexus, as Michael mentioned, is political journalism, as far as I can tell, is just operating like it's 1988. And from what I can tell, the people who are running it see no reason they should alter what they're doing. Their assumptions remain the same. Uh, it's the church of the savvy, and they feel that that can sort of get them through anything. And it's like they don't even know what time it is. So political journalism at the elite level, at, which includes state races and uh, regional capitals, as well as Washington and New York, is uh, – undisturbed, as it were, by the rest of the world. I think the only thing that can break up the nexus that Michael talked about is when you have intense involvement by, by the electorate. And it's really only that that can break it up. A surge in activism, high interest and high knowledge. Things like negative ads and TV uh, campaigns work best under conditions of low mobilization, low knowledge, the low information voter, as they call them in politics. And it's really only us in a way. It's only a surge of democracy that can break up that uh, cycle. But that becomes a chicken egg problem. I've watched with Daggett's campaign. Um, he's been he's been the one going up in the polls. Others are going down. But you, but hitting critical mass. I mean, massive surge. Yeah, it says massive surge is the only thing that really changes the equation. Like we saw last year with the Obama campaign and millions and millions of people donating money and millions and millions of people getting out there. I do think, uh, and volunteering and so forth, I actually do think that that had some effect 
on uh, the way the uh, discourse uh, played out in some way, by which I mean there were a lot of attack ads and there were a lot of pals around with terrorists and so on and so forth. But a lot of that voters obviously kind of tuned out. And, I think and, you're right. It became irrelevant. Yeah. Well, so, so, Jay, if you were giving the sermon at the Church of the Savvy, uh, what would you be saying to the to the old guys? Well, I'd ask them what choice they want to make. If they want to remain part of the professional political class and more or less identify with the operatives and fundraisers and strategists who they quote in their articles, if that's who they want to hang out with and sort of be for, then they should continue doing what they're doing. Um, if they want to recover a sense of mission that probably brought them into journalism, then they should change what they're doing. But it's not clear to me that they want to do that. It seems to me that they prefer being part of the savvy professional class of manipulators who run politics at that level. Michael, you live amid them. I do. And, you know, it, uh, at times I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of them maybe uh, uh, or have been. Um, but, you know, I, I, the power of of that class, of, uh, of the class of elite political reporters, is uh, really going down, and I think it's I think it's going down pretty quickly. And uh, and you know the biggest stories, or some of the biggest stories last year, were broken by uh, Huffington Post and and you know Citizen reporters. Um, so it's not you know the, the political reporters, the frontline political reporters for the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time and Newsweek and Et Al. Still powerful, but not nearly as powerful as they were 10 years ago. As we come up to uh, uh, congressional elections next, I wonder whether – Obama is one thing because he has the personality uh, and a cult of sorts came around him. Congressional elections are less like that. But there is a chance, I think, for movements, you know, kind of tags and memes to start across the country now uh, better uh, around people. Uh, do you sense any chance of, of change coming in the congressional election or, or is it the next presidential elections that are going to be what make – uh, big change in politics and its coverage? Well, conditions of low mobilization and scant interest don't suggest much of a change. And I think we should realize that the professional political operatives who have always run campaigns and who, for example, make these commercials, they benefit from low mobilization. They want a small number of people to turn out because the smaller the number of people who vote, it, the easier it is to move that tiny percentage that can make the difference. And right? the more they advertise and, and make the, from that. Right. And the more their skills and their knowledge matter. Whereas when you have lots of people flooding in, all of a sudden the consultants don't know more than the candidate. Right? Like everything else in the Google age, it's about losing control. And control losing is control, what politics absolutely. is about. And, 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 the, the, and so the control revolution only arrives when something outside that system disrupts it. Media Talk USA. Now, a note from Guardian HQ. Media Guardian is launching a unique book this month, and joining us to tell us about it is the head of Media Guardian, Steve Busfield. We have a weekly blog about The Wire, uh, the uh, cult TV show, where it's, it's, it's sort of basically an online book club talking about this TV show. Um, because of the way that the show became a hit in Britain, it was never really watched by lots of people at the same time. I, I think most of its viewers have been DVD box sets. So people have found that what they've wanted to do was talk about it, and what we created was an online forum. 
and we had this all of this fantastic content. I mean, not just the things that were written by uh, by Guardian writers, but also all of the comments by uh, by our commenters. And we suddenly looked at this and thought, actually, we should create a book which is as much the Guardian readers uh, and their comments as it is about the Guardian writers. The Wire re-up from Media Guardian will be available this month through guardianbooks.co.uk or follow the link from the Media Talk USA homepage. Media Talk USA. And now a few stories from around the world of media. In the latest ratings, CNN fell to the floor with Fox News and the newly opinionated MSNBC now beating it. Is this the last nail in the coffin of the myth and business model of objectivity? Maybe not the last nail, but it's a nail. Um, But I think also it's in some respects particular to that medium. Cable news is about opinion. You know, it's not really uh, as much about information as it used to be. I still think if there's a big major event, a war, something like that, People who don't tune in cable news, which after all we must remember is 95% of the United States, will tune in CNN before they'll mostly tune in Fox or MSNBC would be my guess. But in normal situations, normal politics, healthcare debate, what have you, uh, cable news is uniquely about opinion. So Fox and MSNBC are bound to beat CNN. I don't know what they do about it. But it does spread beyond TV. Jay, you've been talking about Newsweek trying to understand how to be – a voice without having a voice. Yes, how to be provocative without being partisan is the way that they put it. Um, I have a slightly different take on it, Michael. I don't disagree with what you said, but if CNN wants to be the quote-unquote objective alternative to MSNBC and NBC, what Jonathan Klein, excuse me, Fox and MSNBC, what Jonathan Klein and his crew do not understand is that you have to still be willing to call BS when it happens on your air. And that's what they're not willing to do. They're not willing to be the network that says, you know, this strategist we just had on was full of hot air. (laughs) And I think that is a problem. They're not generating trust from the position that they think is more trustworthy because they're not really willing to do that. And they should admit they're not willing to do that. And then they would understand their situation better. What they really need to do is take a cue from Jon Stewart, who does call BS on the news when he sees it. And if they were willing to be influenced by him, they'd have a way to steer through these two alternatives. So next story, Business Week survives. It's been bought by Bloomberg in a deal set to close in December. The magazine fell out of profitability with astonishing speed after Steve Adler took over as editor from Steve Shepard, who is, another disclosure, the dean of the journalism school where I teach and we record this. Did the fall of print do them in? Did the financial crisis With Bloomberg's thousands of journalists around the world, what can they bring to revitalize this venerable brand? What would you do with it? I would certainly continue something that their online editor, John Burns, started, which is uh, a campaign to increase engagement with the site. That has been his key term. And it would be interesting if Bloomberg, an organization that's built entirely around breaking news and latest information and... Uh, get in and get out, learn some of those lessons because they have resources, they have people, um, they can invest. So I would continue what Business Week Online started in their engagement strategy. But I fear that the people in Bloomberg don't understand what that was about and why it was important. 
and that they'll probably just uh, get rid of it. Another thing that interests me about that story is McGraw-Hill ultimately saw Business Week as, as kind of a, a small part of its future and really not a very important property. But McGraw-Hill owns Moody's, right? And you know, Moody's is one of those institutions that completely failed us in the mortgage crisis, completely. And Business Week is one of those institutions that's supposed to like check up on that, you know. And they are keeping Moody's, and they're getting rid of Business Week. It's something wrong about that. Finally, how can we leave a podcast about media in the U.S. without talking about Fox and the White House? Is it all just show? Is it all showbiz? What's the strategy behind Obama's uh, feud with Fox? First of all. Let's assume uh, Jay used the phrase "low information voters." Um, you know, let, let's assume that average Americans are fairly low information people. I don't mean ignorant; I just mean low information. Uh, I think a lot of average people may not even know that Fox is the conservative network or the Republican network. I actually think that. I mean, you know, really? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, or they may. Get confused. They can't. They can't quite remember whether it's Fox or whether it's one of the other ones. God, I thought it was the inside joke that everybody got. Well, I mean, everybody like us, but you know, and other people have other things to do, and they watch ESPN, not cable news. Uh, so, you know, I think just telling the country. I don't think that you know the old cliche: you shouldn't pick a fight with a man who buys ink by the barrel or 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 owns television stations or whatever. I think that cliche doesn't actually apply here. I think it's okay what the Obama administration is doing because they're pointing out to people this is a very partisan network. It is a very partisan network and no one denies that. I mean Republicans watch it for a reason, right? <laughs> because they like it. Um, I don't think they're going to – I don't think there's going to be any blowback on the Obama administration for doing this necessarily. Uh, it's not like Fox was going to give Obama any better coverage because he gave them an interview once a year. Um, I don't see much downside. Well, recently there was a Pew poll about um, Americans' perceptions of different news networks. Just came out, and forty-seven percent said Fox leans conservative, but then again, fifty-three percent didn't say that at all, and fourteen percent said it was actually liberal. <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. I don't think there's going to be any big political cost to Obama for doing this. I agree with Michael. The Church of the Savvy, though, thinks. It's a big mistake. They think he's showing how unsophisticated he is about media. He's uh, Nixonian. It was fascinating that an NPR host tried to equate criticism of Fox with what Nixon did with his enemies list and he ended up having to apologize because the parallel was so ridiculous, right? Now, why? Why? It was the attraction of showing, hey, I can side with Fox when the merits call for it. You know, I can show you how that the I'm old not a liberal. Balance me. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. like psychotic because they and and that's one thing about it. The other thing I think is interesting about it is, I don't know how sophisticated the White House is about this because I don't have any line into their thinking. But if I were a let's say a Democratic Party strategist. I would want the Republican Party associated with Fox and I would want to cement that in there because when people kind of look at Fox and look carefully at it and they're going to – whatever sins and errors and kind of absurdity of Fox they see, 
rubs off on the Republican Party. And I don't think that's a bad thing for Obama in a strictly political terms. I don't think it's bad at all. And the notion of you have to kind of convert the Fox people to your side, I don't see that as very important either. Finally, it is true that if you look at Fox as an as a news network and as an ideological construction, it is different than the other news organizations. It isn't operating in the same way. And it's not just the politics of it. It's actually a crazy commercial thing. It's it's the blondes every two minutes. It's it's tabloid as well. And it is run by a political operative. So to say that Fox is different is not an outrageous statement. To me, that is an empirical statement. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and paid content. Our last story today, Columbia University's School of Journalism just released a report by former Washington Post editor Len Downey and Professor Michael Schutzen arguing that there is a crisis in American journalism and that it needs to be reconstructed. The report at 100 pages did well chronicling notable development in our rapidly changing journalistic environment, namely the independent websites popping up everywhere to cover news and investigate government. Even so, the authors declared a crisis in American journalism, and this led them to what I would characterize as desperate measures, most notably using FCC taxes to underwrite American journalism. Now, that thought isn't so radical to our UK listeners, what with their beloved BBC. Indeed, yesterday I Skyped into a symposium on hyperlocal news in Britain called by MP Sean Simon. And the discussion ended up asking what government can and should and should not do for journalism there. Over here, we have similar efforts by both the Federal Trade and Federal Communications Commissions to ponder journalism's fate. Much of this effort rests on the assumption that journalism is in crisis. Personally, again, I don't buy that. Newspapers are, but journalism is, as Columbia documented, blessed with innovation, and here at CUNY we even see sustainable business models for it. So, should government insert itself into this debate and into the news business itself? Jay? Well, I'm not too worried about that, Jeff. Uh, They did make those recommendations, but I don't see them gaining any traction, so I'm not concerned about government taking over the news business. Uh, I looked at the report in a slightly different way. Um, I compared it to uh, getting the Soviet tanks out of Eastern Europe in, in this sense <laughs> that, that the, this is a report by the establishment looking at the news business. And what you don't find is what struck me. You don't find the attacks on citizen journalism. You don't find bloggers can't replace what we do. You don't find uh, wailing about the future and denial. You find an open acceptance that the world has changed and that there are many more new players and that this is a good thing and that if you look around, lots of very fertile things are happening. And this is the establishment going not all the way towards new media but uh, reconciling itself to the fact that we got to get the Soviet tanks out (laughs) because the world of professional journalism isn't going to be the same anymore. And from my point of view, that's what you want. They're never going to have new ideas. They're never going to have the bold new way forward. But we can hope that elites accept that the world has changed and that is what that report was about. Okay. Stipulated, Your Honor. But it legitimizes a discussion of tax-supported journalism that gives me hives. 
and that matters as we come to these hearings at the FTC uh, coming up, and the FCC uh, is going to start its own reports about this. I mean, I just fear, Michael, that in Washington, we're going to see some momentum to say, we can not only fix banking and the economy, we can fix journalism now. I don't think so, Jeff. Mm, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I share your concern. I mean, it gives me hives, too, and we should explain to our British readers who, uh, I, I, as far as I know, still very much trust and value the BBC, that that really, uh, that's a model that just doesn't have any tradition in the United States. And it doesn't, uh, it, it seems very alien, uh, even to liberals uh, in the United States, certainly to conservatives and even to liberals. Well, also to liberals because of the conservatives have interfered with NPR and with yeah, PBS right. Right, and, exactly. and so on. There's a bad history. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, there's an actively bad history because we do have uh, a publicly funded broadcasting system and, and it's been uh, a political football uh, depending on, uh, you know, when the Republicans controlled Congress particularly because they see it as having a, a deeply liberal bias. Uh, so... Uh, I, I, I have hives right with you, but I just can't see it. So gaining, no political will for this. I can't see it gaining any traction, no matter who's in power in the White House, no matter who's in power in Congress. Well, thank goodness you put my mind at rest. A perfect moment to end the podcast. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks. Enjoyed it. And Jay, thank you for coming back again. You got it, Jeff. Media Talk USA is engineered by Chad Bernhardt and produced by Glenn Osten Anderson. We record in the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments and barbs to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe from there, too, so you don't miss next month's edition, which will be uploaded around the first week of December. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thank you for listening. Media Talk USA. Media Talk USA.